This episode is brought to you by Stratosphere.io, the best web-based research terminal for company-specific metrics like KPIs and segment revenues. The service saves time, has a beautiful interface, and has the best data visualizations on the internet for equities. Now, our favorite features are the 10 years of data with data visualizations. This includes company-specific KPIs, charts for all the financial metrics you might be interested in, and stuff specifically for that company. So for example, if you're looking at a payments company, you might have take rates, you might have GMV. If you're looking at a marketplace, you'll have GMV as well. All that good stuff that can get you updated on your research process. If you want to get started today for free, go to stratosphere.io and start utilizing the powerful research terminal. Again, that is stratosphere.io. The link is in the show notes. We hope you'll join us on there today. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. This is the Chit Chat Money Investing Power Hour number 16. We come with, there's only one rule and that is no, you're not allowed to have anything prepared. We're supposed to just wing it essentially on all things financial markets. Um, which haven't been too lively over the last week, frankly. Um, am I missing anything? Was there was there anything entertaining that's like that I, was like a total headline that we should have talked about? Well, I think Monday there was some other. Oh, with the Twitter deal, they kind of had that expected thing. They're going to do the expedited court stuff, that's which right. I don't think that was that exciting. And then everyone was looking forward to Netflix and. Tesla earnings, but they kind of had no big surprises uh, on the positive or negative side, at least from what I glanced at. I don't follow those companies super closely, but those were kind of the two earnings I was maybe excited to watch because everyone likes following those companies. Everyone likes having a take, but pretty boring so far. I mean, earnings season doesn't really start until next week when we get uh, the big three, the big four, I think. Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Alphabet slash Google. I mean, those are the big four. That's the most important. The uh, yeah, the Netflix quarter was a little underwhelming. For you, a little underwhelming. Wasn't really, wasn't really anything like that noteworthy. They did. They they still are seeing elevated churn in the U.S. and Canada. Like they're they're still losing subscribers at a higher pace than they. Like I think they lost 1.3 million paid subscribers this quarter in the U.S. and Canada last year. At this time, they lost 0.4 million. So, and they they called it. They said they literally said we're we're still seeing elevated churn. I wonder if that has anything to do with competition because those are probably the two more mature streaming markets. If I had to guess, and. They're losing subs. Granted, this is the quarter when they usually lose subs. Like it's a weaker quarter for them. But 
I don't know. There's so many yeah. options now. You got a, yeah, I would, I was thinking you got the new game of Thrones coming on HBO and then the Lord of the Rings show a month after on Amazon prime. That's going to be some tough competition in the Americas. I wonder how the international distribution will be on those because I know Netflix definitely has that, you know, or at least historically has had that advantage with international distribution being a lot cleaner. It's because they have less licensing deals, but I think those are a big threat. Yeah. In the United States, it's tough to, I don't know. (laughs) Well, yeah, the, the other thing is they kept stranger things season four uh, that carried into the second quarter. And I think that might've helped them uh, where uh, like it may have elevated the paid subs more than is truly indicative of what they have like on a recurring basis without any of their like extreme high, high paid content. Yeah, I agree. The having that, I mean, making that choice, it might have made the numbers look even better, but we'll see. Oh, I, you know what else I wanted to say? Last week, we talked about the value of a Costco membership, and I got the numbers right. wrong. I, so I went back this week for gas. $4.89 a gallon. The local gas station next to my house, which is cl- closer than the Costco, five seventy nine. Mm-hmm. Big break or big uh, a gallon. I mean, that's a, that's high. That's high. That's a good uh, mix. What are usually that'd be like 15, $15. No, $15 no, probably $15 a tank. If you're filling up a 16 gallon tank, maybe 17. Yeah. Eh, it could be worth it. Yeah. No line. Probably go. I drive a little more than you, I think. So I probably, fill up four to five times a month. Oh, that's rough. Cars. Some pe- <laughs> Gas mileage isn't great, but some people are probably listening to this. Like I have to fill up. Yeah. Twice a week. Yeah. There's some people and filling up that tank. Uh, yeah. Well, I guess we talked about that last week. A ton. Uh, the last thing I want to talk about on Netflix is the ad supported tier. We talked about them getting the Microsoft deal, but I think, they wanted to, they gave out like number of streaming hours this week. And it seems like if, even if their say subscriber numbers are steady or they're kind of like running in place, not really able to get that stable growth of the subscriber numbers, seeing how, and I didn't have the exact, I don't have the exact data in front of me, uh, but I know they shared some stuff, seeing how much more just in general, Netflix has watched in a lot of markets than other streaming services makes me, and I still don't like this space in general. It just makes me more optimistic about the potential of the ad supported tier and their ability to price it, you know, fairly low and still make a lot of money. However, it's, it's a, it still feels like a really, they got to walk a thin line because it is adding the freemium is just a totally different model than premium. And you got to make sure you get that stuff correct. There could be a lot of mistakes to be made. Yeah. And now that I think about it, it was probably good for Netflix to wait on the advertising model until CTV ad tech was at a level where it was like not degrading the experience or detracting from the experience. The interesting thing is I don't think 
Microsoft even has connected TV, an existing connected TV advertising business. From from reading into the partnership, it sounds like they're developing it for this Netflix partnership. That just seems like a risk that they didn't need to take. I did see, I saw some speculation that they are cozying up to Microsoft with this partnership to be acquired after the Activision deal. Yeah, that could be interesting. I know a lot of people are throwing that theory around. I, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Microsoft, if they did that, I would just... Okay, they're so big. Their core stuff is so profitable. I would just be like slightly worried they're getting a bit bloated. You know, with all these different parts. I know they have a decent, you know, they have the advertising, gaming, slash media division, or those are two separate things. Sometimes they overlap a bit, but and Netflix would kind of fit into the gaming-ish because they're both entertainment. But I, I would just worry a bit about all these acquisitions and the company bloat if if they if they went after Netflix for a deal. Yeah. I never like it when big companies just like start acquiring like as their growth strategy, mm-hmm. I, even though, even though Microsoft's growing nonetheless, uh, that, yeah, it would, cons- it would kind of concern me Two, That would have to be probably like a $150 billion acquisition. Right. It'd be quite large. Maybe they yeah. take stock, but maybe, maybe. Yeah, that, that is interesting because they, I don't know if they have the cash on hand. Maybe not. May, maybe so. I do like, I, Netflix for me will always be sort of outside of my, like I'll never have an edge on whether or not I want to buy it. Like whether or not I think, okay, this will be the winner. Like I do think it's durable but I don't know what cash flows will look like. Yeah. I'm unsure if it's the industry's durable. I would be much more confident in short form video or like say up to maybe YouTube style stuff as well. And video games being more durable um, than video. You kind of get what I mean. I just, I was watching a video or I was watching a clip of rich Greenfield. That's his name, right? Yeah, Rich Greenfield from Light Shed um, on CNBC this week. And he said YouTube accounts for 50% of all connected TV advertising revenue. So, yeah, yeah, I'm probably more comfortable making that bet that they're going to stick around and be the durable, the one durable sort of. I mean, it's, it's also idiosyncratic. It's very different than, you know, it's not long form content, which is sort of. Not necessarily commoditized, but competitive. Well, the, some of the stuff on there is longer. Yeah, definitely have hour-long stuff there. But yeah, it's, it's, it is completely different. All right, new topic. Uh, trying to go through my likes. It has been a boring week. There was a good... Let's see. If we're going into compounder land, which we tend to, to be in, there's a good tweet from Willis Cap. Who is uh, I think some people listening may know who that is, but anonymous, semi-anonymous account on uh, on Twitter, and they said, "Think 
I think one of the starkest lessons from the past few years is that if you are analyzing something on future scaled margins and or insane growth, then you need to make sure you use an adequately high discount rate. Um, I think that encapsulates at least this is excluding saying the you know 50 times sales stuff or not the 50 times sales. This is excluding like the meme stock speculation, the crypto speculation, kind of those bankrupt, you know, speculative stuff, but maybe just the people that thought they found a high quality business and overpaid, us included. Um, do you think that encapsulates what happened for a lot of you know compounder style, buy and hold style investors over the past? three, what would it be, three years-ish? Yeah. Yes, and looking back, so we were looking at a company today, Warby Parker, which we're going to do a show on here shortly, and I was just thinking, like, people's, last year, investors' time horizons and, like willingness to just accept an optimistic future and like forecast that everything would go right was so common and their time horizons expanded so long. It just didn't make, now I look back on it and it's crazy how prices can drop by 85% and I, and you're still struggling to make the case that this is going to work out. Yeah. I think a key is there's a huge difference between someone that has proven positive cash flow consistently versus someone where it's more theoretical and you need tons of margin expansion. Uh, there's a lot of other nuances to every business. Sometimes maybe a company is only um, cash flow negative for one year because of some weird thing that happened. But the, I think maybe it's changed in my mind, and I'm assuming we've discussed this, you know, plenty has probably changed with yours when someone is or one stock is say unproven unprofitable but has that potential for high margins or good margins say 20 percent plus or something like that you i want a way higher discount than a proven one um yeah it's just proven cash flow generation because if it's unproven there could be costs in there that just they can't figure out how to scale. They can't figure out how to get operating leverage, even though theoretically, say, a company with, and there's plenty of them out there with 55 plus, 60% plus gross margins all the way up to the 90% software ones who never seem to get that operating leverage. Yeah. And it, it, it shows up in adjusted EBITDA, but it never shows up in cash flow. Well, that is another good uh, point. I saw a... Maybe I'll pull up the data on this. Uh, where was it? It was you a know good. What else I'm really sick of is all right. We're and this is gonna be like a spoiler for the Warby Parker show for anyone that ends up listening. I don't like when companies like it's it's really starting to sicken me when companies act like they're more than they are. If you sell glasses your mission statement shouldn't be to change the world. Yeah. And, hey, you they just, and you shouldn't use adjusted EBITDA. You're not software. It's not indicative of your cash flow. And you're like essentially a retail business. Yeah. Well, I don't think anyone should use adjusted EBITDA ever, but there's some companies where, you know, it's better than others. Here is something from Voss Capital, V-O-O-S. Just subscribe to their Substack. Believe it's free. Seems like a good spot for- uh, V-O-O-S or V-O-S-S? 
the OSS, excuse me. Here is a nice quote. And I think it kind of like I did the tweet from that football coach. It was like, they are who we thought they were. Like we've kind of been seeing this without putting any data to it. He ran the numbers or they ran the numbers on um, a lot of software businesses. And here's the quote that kind of summed up the big takeaway from this Substack. Since 2016, the median software company has increased their stock comp rate as percentage of sales from 4% to 9%, effectively having 500 basis points of hidden margin compression. That's kind of like putting numbers to what we've been seeing when looking at uh, you know one new company every week. Yeah, it's kind of, it's, I'm starting to see it from like the employee standpoint too, is wow. I got, like they offered a great compensation package or stock compensation package. Like I couldn't turn it down. I'm like, why are you talk to someone like anecdotally or no? Yeah. Anecdotally. And it's not like a, it's not a public company. I don't think, but they were, like it's their whole hook to attract talent. Like yeah. just give them cash, give them a good salary. And then the other thing I I've met a lot of people who say, yeah, I'm just waiting till my options vest and then I'm out of here. It just creates this like hurdle date where it's like, if you just paid them well, maybe they'd stick around. It's like, Oh, I get paid well here. But giving them that theoretical date where, all right, that's when my bonus hits. I can get out of here after that. It, it gives them like this, I don't know, this like looming date for an out. And I just don't, it has such a strange effect on the morale of an employee. Mm-hmm. And maybe I it isn't like, maybe it isn't that they're doing like shittier work or, or I don't know if we're swearing on this show anymore, but the, uh, Worse work. It's just that they are distracted. If if their stock and their whole net worth is kind of tanked over the last year, they're probably looking for a way to make money elsewhere or looking somewhere else to go because you've you've now leveraged. You've essentially it's like embedded leverage. Oh yeah. You're preaching to the choir here. Now we talk about this. I feel like every week. So I want to segue to something related. And when someone you said, you know, might be like, okay, I'm looking for a way out. All right. Let me just go to um, Fang, a Fang company who I know is reliable, is looking for my skills. Here's a headline I saw yesterday. And we've seen multiple headlines from other companies. Um, All right. This is from Zero Hedge, but it was Bloomberg. All caps, because of course, Zero Hedge. Microsoft slowing hiring in some groups, eliminating open jobs. So generally, what are your thoughts on that? I feel like there's, it's a bit positive. You could spin it positively or negatively, but it feels like a lot of the job market is tightening up in these tech service, basically non-labor opportunities. Yeah. I think it's accurate and it's kind of surprising me because we kind of thought the other way around that they would be hiring at cheaper salaries. Like they could pay less and still get those employees or pay less than they typically would. Like, let's say the other, you know, at 
a company that was working at a SaaS startup or whatever was making a hundred thousand plus another hundred thousand stock options. And now that whatever, or RSUs and the stock's worth nothing. The, uh, I'll bet Microsoft could have come in there and offered them 150,000, which is a discount to whatever the other companies would have been theoretically and got them because there's more job security and people are less worried at those companies. But to see them slow it kind of shocked me. I wonder if that's to keep existing employees, like not affect their compensation. But at the same time, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't think that they're other than Google, which is a primarily ad business, like Microsoft, I wouldn't think that they were that affected. It also makes me realize recessions and inflation helps nobody. Like I thought I, before, but when we didn't have inflation, I thought, oh, this is an inflation protected business. Like they'd be fine. They could pass along any cost increases because they have pricing power. Pricing power is so much more rare than I actually thought. Yeah. There's only a few companies out there. Maybe that's why Buffett is so picky. Um, yeah, I also think it's possible these could be specific situations where the big tech, they kind of got so big and then they have these hiring departments that they put on autopilot and they just got too big. If you get what I mean? Is that possible? Right. Because I mean, I was driving past, I was driving in Seattle yesterday and I saw all the Google buildings it's the middle of the day. There's no employees at them. And there's just tons and tons of buildings that they paid for. I'm like, there's just, there is bloat that probably doesn't matter when things are going right. Yeah. And I, there was another anecdote. Uh, the, I forget the areas. I think it was New York, Nashville, and then Bellevue. So right by us, the Amazon and Facebook or meta are pausing. I think I was just reading some Reuters blurb are pausing their new office building construction to re I don't know. I think it said like re strategize for hybrid work environments or something like that. So that could mean that they're like, Oh shoot. Cause I think they were building like the tallest building in Bellevue, which is the second biggest city in Seattle. Uh, the for Amazon was, for like their new headquarters in the Bellevue area and they're going to have like 12,000 new jobs. It seems like maybe they overthought that and then Google or something was doing similar stuff, although they've already pulled back in Meadow in New York City. What do you think of... I feel like commercial real estate, it, it could lag, but it feels like I wouldn't want to be in that market at all. There's so much uncertainty around how, like whether these big companies and not just big tech, but big companies in general decide what, like they decide whether these commercial real estate companies are going to go bankrupt essentially. Yeah. I mean, I want to, I, I want to, well, maybe not. I I mean, not in like a hybrid work environment. I feel like we've been saying this for like a few years that it's not very advantageous for commercial real estate. I don't think, it'd be fun to be a real estate agent anywhere right now. I saw the Miami home sales were down like 28% or something like that year over year. Wow. That's not surprising. Last month. 
<laughs> yeah, Phoenix. I saw Phoenix has gotten hit hard. Not surprising that Arizona and Florida seems to be the spot where there was <laughs> the most excess. If you look at historically uh, what's happened there. Yeah, home slowdown. I saw that Zillow. Um, Speaking of which, I rode by Bill Gates's house on a boat the other day. Oh, really? Kind of. Uh, I, I would. There was a bunch of boats like circulate circling his property, like taking like pictures and stuff. And it just made me think like that would be kind of annoying. Like that would kind of suck. And there's like security that if you're there for too long, will like come out onto the dock and like shoot you away. Yeah. I don't really get going to see people's houses. Like great. It's a house. What they live in it. I'm sure it's got some rooms. (laughs) I'm guessing they have a kitchen. I'm guessing they have bedrooms and I'm guessing they have a living room. And probably yeah, it's a game. Kinda, it's like a compound. It's kind of cool to look at. But is it though? <laughs> I thought it was pretty cool looking. It's a house. Uh, yeah. I th- I find those things strange. I find those things very strange. All right. Uh, here was the other. Okay. On um, the housing, Zillow. Apparently, this is their update from yesterday is saying that housing bears are wrong. They are forecasting that U.S. home prices will jump 7.8% between July 2022 and June 2023. Does that feel... Now, they they forecast that home prices are going to jump 7.8% between July 2022 and June 2023. What do you think? I think they're wrong. If they're right, that means... No one's going to have any discretionary income to spend on other stuff. It's all going to be tied up in mortgages. Okay. It's something that I like struggle with because it feels just, just anecdotally, it feels like there is not like we kind of have a housing shortage that there are a lot of people that want to buy houses. There isn't enough available inventory, but it looks like that at the peak of every bubble or mania or whatever you want to call it euphoria there's always low inventory and we're in a well i guess you're probably looking at the data too but we're also in an area where it's extremely bad i mean inventory was at its decade low in may but it's since come back up so like part of me is like all right people are going to be like because rates are higher prices are going to have to drop just because of affordability yeah, and we just had a comment here. Didn't mortgage rates just hit new highs? I think so. I don't track it every day, but it's like more than doubled since the bottom during the COVID lows, and that doubles uh, the payments. And prices, and green- I mean, prices are going to have to drop. But at the same time, I still see them in such high demand because of that, like people looking for houses. And granted, that is anecdotal. Everyone's got their own anecdotes when it comes to real estate. But... So I see that there's like sort of a, a buffer or some sort of mark, sort of like a, I think the shortage provides a floor in terms of prices, but the higher rates go, there, there's simply no place for price to go but down because there's, it's not in the realm of, for, of affordability. Yeah, I agree. Greenwald Capital friend on Twitter said, these are the same people referring to Zillow that lost money flipping homes in an insane real estate bull market. So I don't know if we should trust Zillow on this one. Here's the thing. <laughs> Zillow was simply, weren't they just ahead of the curve? 
Uh, I mean, sure. We they shut down their operation that. before everyone else. They started firing employees before everyone else. And they sure. didn't find sense. Uh, I mean, are we going to compliment them for uh, – think about that. The housing prices have been going up were like fat. They were going up faster than the 2008 bubble or the 2006 bubble, and they couldn't make money. I mean, how that screams incompetence to me. They okay. I want to say that. I think part of the them hemorrhaging money was the fact that there was so much corporate expense that goes into building that program out. And ideally, yeah, you have to do it at scale. But yeah, it seems the incentives on any iBuying program don't line up. Like you're getting the worst choice of houses. Yeah. And it's like buying from someone that owns the company. Yeah. They, they are going to have more information on the asset than you do. Apparently, but. <laughs> apparently they couldn't make money <laughs> apparently they lost what was it four billion i can't no not four billion it was a lot though um, but they, okay but they, they well they still have inventory that they have to sell through so they could have some i haven't kept up with them but i remember them saying that that could closing that down could end up being profitable for them but okay fair jury's still up jury's still up the uh yeah i think they should have had the foresight to never enter the industry at all it was it was one of those where everyone thought it was a bad idea. Like it was well, universally accepted as a dumb strategy, and they they went for it anyways. And then they recognized, I think, what everyone else was saying. Yeah, well, dumb strategy unless you're an individual, and even then, it's it's a lot riskier than saying buying and holding real estate properties. Okay, now we need to hit. We got to juice views. We got to hit the clickbait. At least for a minute. Thoughts on Tesla having paper hands and dumping uh, dumping the Bitcoin. We got to talk about it. I mean, I knew it was coming. You did. I totally knew that was coming. Are you serious? You can, you can read Musk like a glove. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, Who, I mean, everyone knew that was like he was just going to hold it through. Like, what if it went? He's not going to lose a billion and a half. I think that whole. I think him buying it in the first place was probably a bit of a marketing tactic. Fair. Um, I don't think he's going to lose money on it intentionally, or, or I don't think he's going to let the company lose money on it. They sold what a billion dollars worth. They purchased it for a billion, billion no and a half. Uh, I have no idea. I thought they lost. They lost some money. They lost a little bit, yeah. But they sold like nine nine hundred million. I can't remember. Yeah, it's funny. I as far as I'm as far as I know, he's been rather quiet about it. Not not well, saying anything about the, the the sales. Yes, paper. Yeah, hands. yeah. Did they ask about it on the conference call? I don't listen to those. There, I guess no time. But yeah, they. Yeah, I I, I don't know. It's so, I guess everyone wanted to take on that, but, or like they wanted some reasoning, but I think they just kind of got their heads on straight with, with their finance department. And 
What's interesting is you had these theories the past, say, year or so, maybe year and a half, probably after Block, which was formerly Square, put Bitcoin on their balance sheet. And there was this huge theory that corporates, corporates were going to put Bitcoin on their balance sheet. And Tesla was one of the first ones to do it. And I think, I just don't think they're going to, I don't, it just feels, uh, this is just kind of a nail in the coffin for that. I, I'll bet if, if he ends up answering why he sold, because I imagine there's a lot of overlap between Bitcoin owners and Tesla stockholders. Uh, and so that probably, there's only one, I think there's only one community more passionate than Tesla shareholders, and that's Bitcoin owners. And so that's the, true. It's probably going to frustrate a lot of people. I think he'll eventually have to answer why he did, why he sold. And I, I'm going to put it out there that he says it's for environmental concerns. Yeah, that's a good read. He had been tweeting about that and saying all about the environmental concerns, which, which isn't I, wrong. I agree. I agree with him. Um, but why'd you buy it in the first place? <laughs> you knew about it. <laughs> yeah, he definitely knew about it what they changed their names to that was such a bad like that was one of the best sec filings ever when they changed his name to techno king and then master of uh coin. yeah the cfo master of coin oof that's tough that is tough it doesn't yeah i don't, I don't really know what to think of it i would have expected him to sell but i mean they were profitable otherwise weren't they yeah it seemed like a fine quarter um is the business worth eight hundred billion dollars or whatever? I have my doubts, but they've generated. Uh, well, the last two quarters they've kind of started running in place a bit, but generating slight positive cash flow. Um, although they have operating expenses have like some of them had declined, which I think would be a concern just because if you're trying to scale up into a tech giant, you might want that R and D spend to grow. But again, seemed like. Uh, we got, we got a it was a, seemed like a boring quarter. Uh, <laughs> I see the comment. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, very funny. Said uh, Musk is paying his lawyers in Bitcoin. That, I mean, you can do that. Uh, and that is a great way to pay people anonymously. So right, let's do some scenario planning around uh, the Twitter deal. Okay. All right. Let's say he, uh, Elon Musk loses the deal. They force him to purchase Twitter at the agreed upon price, or um, or even a discount to say fifty. Yeah. How does he finance it? He sells Tesla. That's he can't sell SpaceX. There's not enough. I wouldn't think there's enough liquidity there. You know, to like sell he's SpaceX. Already sold a lot, right? So he has some cash. Yeah, I think he has. Well, after this Greek trip that people are talking about, the Greece trip, I don't know. But uh, no, that's a joke. He, I think he sold like $10 billion, right? To help fund it. So he'd probably have to sell like $20 billion more, I'd say. He can't. Do you think he's going to get the debt from the financiers, whoever they are? Well, that goes above my pay grade because I think when they said they have like 
which is funny, funding secured, which is a funny callback. The uh, the banks, like after they've said that, and these are reputable banks, I forget the who's actually doing it, they're required to fund it, if you get what I mean, legally. So I think they, they kind of have to. And it's like, uh, who are the other ones? Like Andresine Horowitz and some VC firms. So I feel like they'll be fine to fund that part of it, but a lot of it's himself. So. Well, uh, I can't imagine the employees will be, it's so weird to have like your own owner forced upon it. Like you now run a company that no one, that, that you weren't, no one wanted you to run. You can sell it a year later. I mean, you can try to sell it immediately after, but what are they, what is someone going to buy that? Right. He doesn't, he's not forced to keep it. He just has to buy it from the existing shareholders. Yeah. I'm just, don't buy it. Don't sign a binding agreement. The who's more upset though, Tesla shareholders or Twitter employees. You know, a stat I read, sorry, go for this first. And maybe I'll remember the other stat. I'd say Tesla shareholders. I talked to a Twitter employee friend of mine and said they are getting out. They work at Twitter. They're leaving. And quote, I'm a fan of Elon Musk. So uh, it would be just like a terrible workplace environment after that because you've got probably a whole bunch of resenting employees that yeah. probably aren't going to be too happy to, too, too fun to work with. Just and a it's bunch an of company strife. Yep. And it's an impossible business model. So it was already tough and so much data to go through to manage. Yeah. Okay. Here's the other, here's the other thing. I saw an estimate. I don't know. I want to know your first emotion when you hear the stat. There's an estimate that there are 6 million individual retail investors that own Tesla. I buy that. So, did you listen to uh, Bill Brewster's conversation with Vitaly? Uh, I'm not sure how to say his last name, but they talked about Tesla. He like wrote a short book about the company, I think, too. I did not listen to that one. Yeah, it was a good conversation. Kind of, it's funny how there's people on either side of the aisle, but it's so hard to sit in between. Like you have to pick. Like either it's completely overvalued or it's the greatest company in the world and you have to own it. Yeah. It is weird how, and we're all presented with the same information. That's what makes it so exciting. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I've talked to plenty of people where they're like, well, the company is doing so much good for the world, which I might disagree with, but the, but the other stuff, you know, you just got to take it, uh, you know, you know what I mean? Like the other stuff that's clearly kind of crazy. You just got to take it. And I'm like, would you though? Like, is that the type of company you want to invest in? That's kind of just makes me, I don't know, the lack of focus or like, I don't know if ignorance is the right word or like, cause it's not ignorance. It's like choosing to be like, you, you know, like it's there, but you're choosing to be, to not consider it. If you kind of get what I mean in your investing process. I just think that's really underrated in looking at the management team. Are they, it doesn't matter what they're saying. 
because management teams lie all the time, whether it's just like a fib or they say, we're going for the long term. And they actually, how are they acting? If it is kind of like, do what I do, watch what I do, not what I say. And I just think that's so underrated when you look at a company and you're like, well, they're saying all the right things and they're saying they're going to do this and this and this, but what they've actually done in the past, how they paid themselves in the past egregiously is not lining up. And uh, I guess a lot of people, I think, kind of ignore that. Um, With Tesla, it's been fine, but in a lot of other cases, I think it can be a big risk and we've seen it play out time and time again. Yeah. There's also that lawsuit around executive compensation. Oh, really? For, for what? I didn't see this. I don't know, but I saw it was the same judge that's doing the Twitter case, I believe. Ooh, what? You don't know the details of it? I may have to look this up because that is... Just saw it on Twitter. That could be sweet. I would be so happy if we uh, saw that. I think... Was it the well? Who knows? Don't want to get too excited, but the was it the one around like the ten five? What are those? The one hundred five B? I forget how to actually say it. Those plants. Those plants. Yeah, probably. I don't know. I I honestly didn't really look into it that much. There's so many. I feel like there's tons of outstanding lawsuits right now that are just kind of you know. That's slow moving. Courts are slow moving, right? Yeah. Except in yes. Delaware, apparently. Unless you're unless you're going up against Twitter. Well, unless it's merger, because I guess that makes sense. You don't want a merger to take five years. The company could totally change. Uh, all right, other topics. Yeah, I was thinking about something. With okay. Amazon. Amazon. Every time. It's kind of like an obvious statement now, and. It's like Jeff Bezos's mantra or whatever the whole, your margin is my opportunity, but they, every single time they've chosen to compress their own margins to operate as break even as possible, they've deepened their competitive advantage. And I've just kind of been, I don't know why I like just had the epiphany, but originally there was the video. It's like, Oh, are you an internet business or a real or uh, you know, uh, shipping business, and he's like, "We care about the customer." It was the whole thing that the focus on logistics obviously has become a huge moat for him. The other one, paying employees more than everyone else, that's obviously going to be a hit to margins, but it deepens the competitive advantage. There's like yeah. countless situations where they've done that, so I, I think the longer that they can do that, and the more times they choose to compress margins, like the deeper and deeper the competitive moat gets, but. Yeah, I like that. Um, I always wonder one. if I'm just, why I don't own it. <laughs> yeah, it seems pretty cheap right now to me. Um, I like Jassy, even though a lot of people don't like him just because the stock went nowhere, but whatever. Seems to be making the right moves now. Here's something I kind of like. Prime? Yeah, buy with Prime, I think, is absolutely genius. I will be using that every time it's available. I mean, who wouldn't? Like, come on. It's, I, I, I didn't buy it, but like Prime Day, they had buy with Prime beta for like 20 shops. And I tested it out to see the click-through. I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago. 
it was great. Like it's the same checkout experience. I know sometimes it's clunky on Amazon, but you know the clicks are minimal. Typically, the UI is not shiny with a lot of Amazon stuff, but it was pretty seamless. And yeah, that is a classic. Your margin is my opportunity because going after the payments uh, ones there. Now here's here's something that came out on Amazon last week. They are trying to or they're testing out a big slowdown in private brands, which is like Amazon Basics, stuff like that, um, because it hasn't been as successful as they wanted. And there's been a lot of antitrust stuff around that, which I never really got that portion of it because Costco, Walmart, and Target all have their own private brands. So don't really sure what, not really sure what the case would be, but that's not really the point I have here. The other, like the point I want to make is that Typically, when someone's, say, searching on Amazon, you would have seen the first one, like search result, would have been the Amazon's basics brand for, say, oh, what was it? There was that joke about the basketball, which I don't know if I'd buy an Amazon basics basketball because <laughs> unless you're really good. Um, but then the second one would have been Spalding, for example. Yeah. But it would be sponsored. But a lot of times, say, someone might pick and in this case, you might not buy the basketball because who would buy an Amazon basketball? But you'd buy the Amazon Basics basketball. They sell it at cost. They're making no money off of that. They're basically you know going the Costco model. Um, you, you know they're just earning money off of you from your Prime subscription. But if Basics got eliminated, the first list is sponsored from Spalding. Their ad business could take off even further, and I think that's way I mean pretty clearly more profitable. Yeah, but they don't need they don't need more profits. They need a deeper competitive advantage. I I like profits. I don't know. The I suppose they do need more profits at the current uh, after last quarter, but we'll yeah. see if they like the ship. Yeah, but that's just an example. Uh, them changing that up. They said they had two hundred fifty thousand private label products, and. That seems like a pretty easy place to get some cost savings to not have those, except for you know maybe the thousand that sell well. It just seems like a giant waste. Yeah, yeah, maybe I don't know. I, I like having Amazon Amazon Basics offered just because it's so cheap. I I, I, yeah, I get that, but for the right thing, I would not show up to the court with an Amazon. Basic well, basketball. yeah. I mean, like a basic electronics thing, maybe, you know, is a better example, but if, and maybe this is not thinking customer friendly and why they might not do it, but if they don't have Amazon basics, say a cable, and there's something that is 10% more expensive, but they're getting a better margin on that sponsored listing. <sighs> It's kind of weird because they could, the antitrust is going after the Amazon basics when it's the most customer friendly part of the business because they're making no money off of it. And I think a lot of times they sell it below cost, which I think is kind of insane. But yeah, the uh, I found something interesting. I'm talking about, I was looking at Domino's earnings this week, and uh, there was this quote from a former manager. I assume a store manager that said you could very easily have pizzas made by a machine significantly faster than you could even have a make line put it out. 
as long as there was somebody doing quality control checks, which of course you'd want to make sure that you're putting out a good product every single time, you could automate that process. He says, you could probably even automate a system where it was pulled out of the oven and cut the specific way that a customer wanted. And basically it just goes on and on about all the automations that Domino's could and are still to have. I agree. I I wonder if anybody will be able to really compete on the pizza front with Domino's. Like, I mean, if the other big brands invested, they could definitely do it. I mean, they have the best, they're positioned the best, but Pizza Hut could do it. I know they kind of have been running in place. Papa John's had the huge activist thing, I guess, or the CEO had that weird, the founder, everyone realized the founder was insane and a racist, but uh, yeah, I mean, pizza feels like the easiest food to automate, right? At least those basic ones. Yeah. All right. If you had to pick one of the big companies that exist today, uh, more than like a $10 billion market cap, let's say, that won't exist in five years. In five years. Wow. I made a short list on Robinhood once, so. <laughs> of companies you think will fail? Yeah, or to track. I never really short. Uh, let's see what ones are over 10 billion. Is, is Royal Caribbean over 10 billion? Let's look. Robinhood's market caps are always way off. Ooh, down to nine. So they don't count, but I'd put Royal Caribbean in that simply because. Their capital structure is like scary bad. Uh, where is, yes, Lucid Motors. I mean, that's a $35 billion, $36 billion market cap. Really? Pre-revenue, premium electric vehicles. Yeah, I mean, come on. This is, it's a clear. Who owns, uh, I, I just. <laughs> I a $35 billion market cap? 36, probably even higher, fully diluted. I mean, it's going to be. How? Like, what's the, I don't know, what's the bull thesis? Are they the ones with the Amazon order? No, that's Rivian. That's I, I wouldn't choose Rivian because they have giant industrial orders. But, and I see their cars on the road. Lucid was, I mean, they got car of the year, but. Uh, I d- I've done some movers for the Molly Fool on them. I just look at their earnings to kind of summarize some stuff, and they look tough. Sweet IR page with the guy looks like James Bond, though. So, <laughs> I wonder what uh, the correlation is between companies that spend way too much money on their IR page and uh, hammer- and whether or not they're hemorrhaging money. Okay, Lucid Group, fifty-seven billion dollars in revenue. Oh my God, you're not going to give me the. Okay, yes. They, I guess they have 5 billion in cash. So, uh, what? 57. <laughs> Let's go. This is the in- income statement. Uh, yeah, I think for the IPO. Yeah, they raised a lot of money, probably spec. 57 million in, in revenue, cost of revenue, 246 million, R&D, 186 million, SGNA, 223 million. And let's go to, um, CapEx, 200 million. So yeah, I think Lucid, uh, they're in a tough spot. I don't, 
I, I would make that choice uh, if I had to make a bet on that scenario you gave out. Yeah, that's probably a good one. I was listening to a podcast earlier this week with uh, a couple of, it was Eric, it was the CEO of Zoom and then the CEO of Viva Systems. And he the, the Viva Systems CEO, who I liked, he seemed like a smart guy, like said something that just really threw me off. It was on the Acquired podcast. And he was talking about, they were talking about how many rounds they raised in the private markets and Viva didn't have to raise that much. They raised like one and then they were going to raise a second, but they didn't need the cash and they just went public and they made it sound like uh, it was just the way he said it was like, Oh, we didn't even need it. We were able to just unload our shares onto the public. Like they making it the, the idea and I think it's kind of just ingrained in sort of the venture capital culture is that your stockholders are who you dump it to venture capital are your partners, the public stockholders. You mean? Yeah. And it just like, he didn't even know he was saying it and everyone kind of like agreed along like, Oh my gosh, look at, they all bought it like that early. And it's like, it just the, there wasn't the idea or the approach that the public stockholders are your partners. Yeah. Uh, that is not, that would not be if I heard that said by CEO from a company I was looking at, I would be scared. Yeah. And I may have like misinterpreted how he, how he said it, but it's just, I think being raised essentially by venture capitalists where they are like with you in the journey and then you can re-raise and then they help you find capital the next time. And then they, they put you on to different, you know, uh, let's say uh, hiring places or PR firms, or they have all these connections and you see them as your partner. It ingrains this idea that your partners are only the ones who you see and not the not the public stockholders. That's kind of my concern with any big venture capital backed company. Yeah. Which are, there are a lot of, you definitely, that creates a risk for me. And I think you have to wait like a few years on the public markets to see how it plays out. How basically, again, this comes back to that. Watch what I do thing. See what they do. Um, And if there are some, say, Bad signs, red flags. I <laughs> take them. I, take them seriously. That's what. I, there are so many companies out there. I know it sucks to research something for like five hours, and then say, "Oh shoot, I saw this big red flag." Everything else looks great, but I just don't. I think you got to be. When you see that, like you got to be like, all right, there are plenty of fish in the sea. There are thousands of other companies publicly traded. Just got to let this one go. You can be picky. Like you can be super picky. Yeah. The, uh, all right. A few other hot topics. Buffett's gone long oil. True. Thoughts. Because a lot of people have been talking about it. I've kind of absorbed some of their takes. 
do you think he buys the whole thing of Occidental Petroleum for anyone who doesn't keep up? Let's let me look up. It's funny like, that they're yeah yeah twenty percent or something like that. It's funny how their ticker is Oxy. It makes me think of Oxycontin for some reason. Enterprise value ninety three point six billion. Yeah, this could be the nice elephant out there for them to take over. They like industrials for operating companies. He seems to think oil is going to be around for a long time. And let's look at how much cash they generated. Trailing 12 month. Obviously, I get it. I know everyone listening. Trailing 12 month is an end-all, be-all, but it kind of sets up where we are at current oil prices. Uh, wow. Eh. Well, let's yeah, just look at operating cash flow of $13 billion. Uh, I mean, yeah, this is below. You definitely see it. Maybe they don't want to sell, but he clearly likes the business. He loves this simple like theses that uh, are under like he likes the simple theses where basically he can say people are discounting this way too much, and I think this one, you know, if he, if the people are right, or you know, him and others, people that are long oil stocks are right that oil. Uh, Dependence I mean, will be longer and the prices aren't going to collapse or something like that. Uh, and he thinks the management team's good, then hey, well, why not? You can see why he's buying it. They probably will throw out an offer, maybe a cool $100 billion. I mean, you can't have, you can't own a, a company like Occidental Petroleum without having some sort of guess on where oil prices will be. Yeah. And right? I think, well, Yes, but I don't. I think if you own it, you can be a little more like, okay, if it's down one year, we still know demand will be there, kind of deal. And there is that uncertainty, but yeah, they bought they bought a lot of oil companies. Not a lot, but they bought oil companies in the past when they're super cheap. PetroChina, right? They talked about that a ton in the yeah, early two thousand. Like, I think it was like two or three times earnings. Yeah, well, who knows? Maybe Occidental Patron would be two times earnings. We just don't know. Uh, but yeah, sure. I mean, that one, PetroChina seemed absurdly cheap. But so many people asked about that at those old annual meetings. I think it's just because it's one of those weird companies they bought. What do you think about all the uh, companies that are reporting rough revenue, but then good constant currency revenue right now? Like all the foreign exchange problems for the U.S. listed or the U.S. based companies that operate internationally. Uh, tough one. Tough I saw one. that Netflix does a lot of. They um, pay for content costs in the same currency where they collect revenue. Sometimes they they try to do that, and then they also bought I think it was a billion dollars worth of euro bonds that are up like $500 million year to date to offset their losses. Yeah. Foreign currency. Uh, I kind of put that in the category of if you need to focus on foreign currency for your bull case, you probably shouldn't own stuff. Yeah. But if you're getting like a 8% swing in revenue growth, like hope I would assume that the distance between the dollar and every other currency doesn't 
keep at this pace? If it keeps at this pace and you're in the United States, congratulations, because we're all going to be filthy rich. So, you know, we can go live in Mexico. But what if you're operating internationally? Exactly. Like, it's it's an unknown. And if that needs to be a part of your bull case, don't buy it. Yeah. I I just think it's as simple as that. Do you think that a company should hedge? No clue. No clue. Maybe. But yeah. I think you should just consistently have a consistent strategy. Don't you know what I mean? It needs to be the same one. If you do hedges, it needs to be consistent no matter what, matter if your hedges are working or not. And if you don't do hedges, don't do them because then you're a forex trader. And I don't want you don't want your corporate balance sheet, or excuse me, your treasury department being a forex trader. Well, I thought Netflix did a good job balancing it, but good. <laughs> They're all stand drunk Miller. They got ten of them, ten of them over there working the, the ropes. Like it is it's just an impossible market to actually predict. So I remember was it Netflix or well, you know what? Another, go ahead. The international companies, if you own international companies, you'll probably see a boost from this. Yes, we own a well-known Japanese entertainment company that... does a lot of business in uh, <laughs> the United States. Yeah, the yen, the yen blowing up or whatever, going, getting really depreciated versus the dollar. Yeah, it could be for a, if there's Japanese companies that you know, pay salaries in yen and then sell stuff internationally. That could be a huge benefit. But again, it feels unpredictable. It's crazy how, like, if you're in America, all you think about or all you hear about is inflation. You don't think about how much worse it is in other places. It's so bad. I was looking at, like, Nigeria once, and they're like, inflation's come down to 11%. There's like riots and I think there was riots in Ecuador this morning. Yeah. Ah, well, I mean, around inflation and cost increases, like it's so much worse elsewhere. Riots in Ecuador. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, I don't think, (laughs) let me close things out with making everyone, our American audience bad. I think Americans are generally a bunch of wusses when it comes to this stuff. We literally have, we live in paradise and people are complaining. Most of us live in paradise. Obviously, some people don't, but it's like, people are like, oh my God, gas is expensive. Like, it's literally sent down from heaven that allows you to travel insane distances so quickly. It's amazing. You can fly in the sky and communicate with anyone around the world. And, but you're like, oh my God, that steak was. Five dollars more than last week. What am I going to do? Sorry, don't need to rant on that. But it is, uh, yeah. Well, that is that's time. So let's wrap up. I'll throw a disclosure on this. Brett and I are not financial advisors, so anything we say or discuss is not formal advice or recommendation. We are general partners at Arch Capital, so we may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. If you want to listen to these. We do these at uh, on Thursdays at 12 o'clock Pacific time, 3 o'clock Eastern time. They're on our YouTube channel. If you just look up Chit Chat Money on YouTube, uh, you can easily click into the live video at 
at three o'clock Eastern time and ask questions. We appreciate Andrew for asking some questions today. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you.